Good morning, everyone. It's Palm Sunday and the beginning of Passion Week, and I am very happy to be here with you. Although I'd probably prefer to be where I normally am on a Sunday morning, which is anywhere but on stage. <laughs> but this right here is how I know that God has a sense of humor. Now, you know this phrase that you hear a lot in Christian circles, that God always answers prayers. Sometimes not in the timing or the way that we want or expect, but he always answers prayers. Well, many years ago, I prayed that God would allow me to use my writing to glorify him. I was genuine about this, and so having the opportunity to write in things like the weekly church email is truly answered prayer. I am so thankful to Pastor Graham for trusting and encouraging me and finding different options and opportunities for me to do this. So recently, when Graham asked me to write something for Palm Sunday, I was intrigued and kind of excited for the challenge. Then when he told me he'd like me to share it on stage in the service, I was immediately repelled and filled with anxiety. <laughs> the truth is, if I told Graham, like, no, I don't want to do it, it would have been fine. Graham is so patient and understanding, and he would have said, like, okay, no problem at all. And my brain knows this. And yet, as soon as Graham mentioned this idea, my palms began to sweat, and everything in me was screaming, no, no, I do not want to do this. But all the while, God was also gently nudging me. So as Graham was explaining how he would love for this to be something that would inspire creativity and be a healthy challenge and something different, a different role within the church, I found myself nodding in agreement. At the same time, a knot of anxiety was forming in my stomach. My mind rapidly came up with a thousand reasons why this was a bad idea and just as many excuses as to why I should pass on this opportunity. And yet, I could also feel God nudging me like, hey, Sarah, remember when you said you wanted to use your writing to glorify me? So here I am in obedience because God is good and he answers prayers. Amen? Now, I say this also because I want you to know that this is exactly where the weekly email, encouragement, devotional, meditations, whatever you want to call them, comes from. It comes from a desire to honor God with a part of me that he made. So I pray, I ask him to teach me and direct me, and my hope is that um, he'll use my gift of encouragement to bring glory to him. I am not a pastor, an apologetic, or a theologian. I'm just a servant who writes, and I hope that some of what the Lord teaches me and encourages me with will be the same for some of you. So now, back to Palm Sunday. It's not the main event, which of course is Easter, but it's the beginning of Passion Week and is sort of the precursor to the main event. So as I was rereading the passages of scriptures about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I was also thinking and praying over it. The first thoughts that I had were how bittersweet riding into Jerusalem must have been for Jesus. I was also struck by how this fulfillment of prophecy also brilliantly illustrates the way that God works with us, through us, and sometimes in spite of us. Now, kings and rulers of that time, especially in the Roman Empire, would have had processionals or parades through the city where people would shout praises and adoration to that king. People would lay down cloaks on the road and throw flowers and wave branches as the king or the emperor passed by. So in so many ways, the reaction of the crowd when Jesus was making his way through the Jerusalem was spot on. To lay their cloaks on the ground before Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, was exactly right. Jesus was king. He did come in the name of the Lord, and he was the fulfillment of the prophesied king who would come through the line of David. Some of these utterances were likely prompted by God's spirit. In the Apostle Luke's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it tells us that when some of the Pharisees in the crowd tried to get Jesus to rebuke his disciples to keep them quiet, Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. There was a palpable and undeniable energy and spirit that could not be contained. The time had finally come for Jesus to fulfill everything that had been written about him. Hundreds of years of messianic prophecy were being fulfilled at that moment. It was an incredibly significant time in history. And yet, the people who were honoring Jesus 
and treating him as the king that he absolutely was, still only had a vague and incomplete understanding of what they were saying. Most had a different kind of king in mind than what Jesus turned out to be. At that time, even Jesus' closest friends and trusted disciples had a limited understanding of what Jesus' kingdom and his kingship really meant. How could they be so right and so wrong at the same time? How wonderful it must have been for Jesus to be honored and recognized as he deserved, and yet how bittersweet knowing that they did not fully understand what they were saying. Some of the mouths that would utter Hosanna to him less than a week later would shout for the Romans to crucify him. Jesus' followers would deny him and run in fear and dismay when the king they were expecting was not the king that they got. How often are these things also true for us? How often do we put our own notions of who God is and what he can and ought to do on him? How often do we pray with our own expectations of how God should answer? Like, God, help me pass this test that I totally didn't study for, but I really cannot afford to fail. Or, God, help me get there on time without getting a speeding ticket, even though I left 10 minutes late. Or, God, let me honor and serve you with this gift, as long as it doesn't require me to, like, move out of my comfort zone, make any sacrifices, or inconvenience me in any way. Okay, so those are exaggerations. But really, how often do we pray and anticipate God to answer in the way that we see as right or with our own expectations? How often do we put God into a box of our own understanding rather than the infinite and limitless God that he is? What encourages me about the triumphal entry is that there was a wide range of people who were there. There were the people who had no real understanding of who he was. There were the people who were expecting him to be a conquering king who would overthrow Roman rule and set them free. There were people who had a limited and incomplete understanding of who Jesus was, but desired deeply to follow, love, and honor him. And there were also the people who understood exactly what Jesus was saying about who he was, and they wanted to kill him for it. And yet, God used all of them for his own purposes. The plan was unfolding with them, through them, and even in spite of them. I think we're often in the same place today. We are part of God's unfolding plan, whether we realize it or not. And our understanding, too, even with the Bible, inspired teachers and preachers, and technology and information at our fingertips, is still somewhat limited. We get glimpses of who God is and what he's doing, but it's still not a complete understanding of the whole picture. I am so glad that being a part of God's plan doesn't mean having to know everything or to get it perfectly right. There's hope in knowing that even when God's plans don't turn out the way that we wanted them to, it just means that God has a better plan. There is joy in knowing that when we stumble or fall or make mistakes, or even if we have no comprehension at the start of what Jesus is trying to teach us, that Jesus already knows and he will give us the opportunity to repent, to be restored, and to grow and understand. We just need to be willing to believe and obey. So I challenge you to consider on this Palm Sunday, as God's plan continues to unfold, will God be working with you, through you, or in spite of you? This is what God left me with after reading the scripture over and over again. We can be used by God because... His perfection covers our imperfection. His righteousness covers our unrighteousness. His light cancels out all the darkness. And his life has saved us from death. Let's use that life to serve the King of Kings. So I want to tell you a story. Um, I like stories. But when I say a story, uh, and because I've told different kinds of stories, you can hear that in a couple of different ways. You can hear that as in, that's a made-up fictional event. Or you can hear that as uh, recalling an actual historical event. Just so we're clear today, this is the actual historical event kind of story. Okay? And if you are historian kind of people, best guess is that this story takes place in August, although uh, that's our calendar, calling it August. And it's in the year 29 AD-ish, and that's our calendar there as well, 
Gospel of Mark is where we're going. Second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So we're Gospel of Mark. If you like to turn there, we're going to chapter 9. This is an event that occurs um, right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. His ministry starts with His baptism, and it ends with His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension. That's the end. But right in the middle, we find this story. And throughout church history, it has been labeled as the transfiguration. So it must be a big, important event because it's got its very own fancy theological-sounding word as, as title. Starting at verse 2, uh, after six days, that's important, we're going to come back to that. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with Him and led them up onto a high mountain where they were all alone. There He was transfigured before them. Verse 3, His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. 4, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. 5, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Six, he didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. Seven, and then a cloud appears, covers them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to Him. There is a reason, no, no, there is no reason today to think that God would not be saying those very same words to you right now. Listen to Him. Listen to what He wants to say to you. So, Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. Peter wants to stay with them. He is comfortable. Uh, he's comfortable with the law. He's comfortable with the prophets. It's all he's ever known. It's what he trusts. They are the old covenant. And Jesus, a little later on, initiates, he ushers in the new covenant. He says at the Last Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. The old is past and the new has come. That's uh, like the Easter-ish, but for them it's a couple of years away. So what are you holding on to from your past? Because it looks good and it sounds good and it's familiar, I know it, I'm comfortable with it, but it's holding you back from moving into your future with Jesus. It's safe, it's familiar, uh, it's well-established, but Jesus is calling you out of your safety and into risk, into trust, into a place where you need Him to show up. And if He doesn't show up, you are done for. You are placing the full weight of all of you on Him. I didn't mean for that to be today, but that's the way it's actually working out right now. Verse 8, suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So we have this mysterious event. Jesus takes three of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, takes them up on a high mountain. Traditionally, we say it's Mount Tabor. Uh, while they were there, and as Jesus is praying, something very strange occurs, right? Just because they're in the Bible doesn't mean they get used to this sort of stuff. Jesus' clothing first becomes radiant, and it's intensely shining, then his face begins to shine and, like, as the sun in all its strength. And if that's not strange enough, then you have these two appearances of people out of their correct history, two people who appear completely out of proper chronology, two great, titanic, legendary, big-name characters from Jewish history, Moses and Elijah, appearing beside Jesus. They are out of the timeline. They are out of chronology, neither one of them has been living in hundreds of years. Moses died like 14 centuries earlier, and Elijah left the scene nine centuries earlier, but somehow here they are with Jesus. This moment is just absolutely oozing with symbolism. Moses and Elijah are not just towering superheroes of the Old Testament. They are also representative figures. So, not only are they in the Old Testament, 
but essentially they are representatives of the entire Old Testament. Because what is Moses? Moses is the lawgiver. He is the embodiment of the Torah, the law. Elijah. Elijah is the iconic prophet, the quintessential prophet. So, to say Moses and Elijah is to say the law and the prophets, which is the way that um, in the New Testament, people constantly refer to the Torah, the law and the prophets. We sometimes say the law and the prophets, and we mean the Old Testament, but we might call it the law and the prophets. Moses gives the law. He's the one who brings it. And what's the purpose of the law? Why do we get that? Well, the law was designed to form Israel as God's people into a just and worshiping society. So, at the heart of the Torah is the Decalogue, and that's a super fancy way of saying the Ten Commandments. I want you to be so prepared for super fancy ways to talk about things. I love to share these words with you. Then Moses receives on Mount Sinai, gets them, and he, and he gives them to all of Israel. The first four commandments, I know this, you're going to just yell them out before I can even get there, are designed to form Israel into a worshiping people. So, first four commandments are no other gods, no idols, keep the holy name holy, keep the sacred day sacred. First four. Then you get the remaining six. They're designed to govern how Israel will treat the other, the neighbor. That is to form Israel into a just society. So, you honor your parents, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, don't covet. So, the law designed to form Israel into a just and worshiping society. Then, later, the prophets come along because Israel, much of the time, fails to live up to this high and noble calling, and we all know what not living up to your high and noble calling is like, right? Not measuring up, not being good enough. You've experienced that. So, the prophets are constantly calling Israel back to fidelity and to justice. It's why when you read the prophets, like I know you read the prophets, they really only denounce two things, idolatry and injustice. That is the wrong worship of God and the wrong treatment of neighbor. So, the law and the prophets have this design that the people of God might be a worshiping and just society. And when Jesus comes and He begins His preaching ministry, the very beginning, He says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, He lets everybody know what He's planning. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, what, what the law, what the prophets were trying to achieve, but were never actually fully able to accomplish, Jesus says, in the bringing of the kingdom of God, I'm going to fulfill all of that. All that from that you remember, I'm here to fulfill it. And it's in Jesus Christ that the goal of the law and the dreams of the prophets finds its fulfillment. So, this story, this transfiguration hanging out on Mount Tabor, this is the place where the law and the prophets find their true successor. They pass the baton to the one that will carry their vision through to completion. You've had a time somewhere where you've connected with Jesus. Maybe it was on the top of your... Maybe you, you, you had Moses in a lot of... But this was a high point. You've Two, you've had moments and places of tremendous spiritual experience. The closeness that you feel, it seems so real. It seems so powerful. Why would you ever want to leave that God? Stay with me in this moment. This is what I love. But you have to leave. You, you've got no choice. That time will draw to a close. So what, what, what about when you leave your mountaintop? You can't stay there. You can't just linger in that place forever. Everyone else is at the bottom. Sometimes they're looking up, wishing they were there, but amidst, they're down amidst the struggles and the, and, and the pain and the distractions, but most of all, they're just in the regularness of life. You must come back into the mundane. You must come back out of the ecstatic and live in the average, the normal. 
So Moses and Elijah, they appear on Mount Tabor to bear final witness, to hand the project off to the one who is going to fulfill it. That's the symbol, and that's the message of Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the holy mountain. But Peter, but Peter, but Peter doesn't understand this. He misunderstands this. And in his misunderstanding comes up with a bad idea. He's overwhelmed. He's very impressed by the fact that Moses and Elijah have appeared. He's Jewish after all, and you're going to be somewhat impressed with Moses and Elijah showing up. And he gets an idea. Peter's the idea man in the 12, and he says, Jesus, I got a great idea. Hear me out, okay? We got Moses, the lawgiver, right? Dude, split the the Red Sea. He's kind of a really big deal. Used to have his face on a lunchbox. Besides that, right beside him. I don't think that I don't know who that is, right? Because that's Elijah. Man, we haven't seen him for, what is it, like eight centuries since he flew away in that chariot straight to God. But here he is. I know who he is. And Jesus, obviously, you're here too. That's great. Nice to see you in such fine company. I knew you were something special. That's why I'm following you. But this is amazing, right? Why don't I, and hear me out, Jesus, why don't we have like three, I don't know what you call them, uh, call them tabernacles, um, uh, memorials, or tents, or something. We, we could build one for Moses, the lawgiver. We could give one to Elijah, the great prophet, and one for you too, Jesus. You'll be here also. Think of what we could do. We could, this would be so good for people to be able to see this. What if we sold tickets? We could have little buses that come up here. People come up and they go, oh man, this is fantastic. We could draw the people up and they could see Moses. Come on, they could see Moses. They could see Elijah. They could be right with them. And they could see you too, Jesus. This could really be amazing. Now, it sounds really weird to us, but this is not as crazy as an idea as you might think, because if you remember the time that we're about August, um, the timeline that we're hitting, it's actually not that far from the Feast of Tabernacles. That's a time when all of Israel together remembers what it was like to be wandering in the desert. So, they are all to build little tents, little tabernacles, and they're called to live outside for a week to remember and to relive their history. It's just a little bit down the calendar from where we are. But after Peter says that, that's when God intervenes, right in the midst of this bad idea. God from heaven, calling it essentially a bad idea and saying, this is my beloved son. Yeah, you caught a lawgiver and you got a prophet, but this this, my beloved son, listen to him. And finally, everything just sort of short circuits Peter, and he, and he faints, and he falls to the ground along with James and John. So, Jesus has to come over to them and, 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 and touch them. And Jesus says to them what he says to us so frequently, don't be afraid. When Peter, James, and John open their eyes, they look around. There's no more Moses, and there's no more Elijah. Verse 8, suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. No longer saw anyone with them except Jesus, because you see, Jesus is what God has to say. The law and the prophets gave Israel a way forward in a very dark, pagan, Gentile world. Moses and the Torah are like the full moon shining in the night. A full moon can give just enough light that you might be able to grope your way forward through dark places. Elijah and the prophets, they're like the starry constellations in the night sky, which if you can read them, The constellations, if you can get them accurately, you can navigate by the stars. You can find your way So, in a pre-Christ world of darkness, the law and the prophets are the moon and the stars by which Israel can navigate forward. But, but with the coming of Christ, 
That is when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When the logos, the logic of God became a human being, this changes everything. This is the sun now rising in strength. What happens to the moon and the stars when the sun rises? They recede. They fade into the background because the new day has dawned. Because God could not say everything that God has to say in the form of a book He said it in the form of a human life. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the logic of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Two, He was God. He was with God in the very beginning. Three, through Him, Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Four, in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Five, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not overcome it. Fourteen, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling, came to live, built His tent, among us. And we, John is talking about him and his buddies, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came to the Father full of grace and truth. 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is all from John's prologue to his gospel, verse 18. No one, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. Well, hold on. Hold on, John. Hold on just a second here. No one has ever seen God at any time. Hey, John, what about Abraham? Right? He saw meal with him under the oaks of Mamre. What about Jacob? Jacob, he saw, he saw God at the top of that ladder thing with the angels ascending and descending. The guy was just here. What about Moses? He saw, saw God, and his face was left shining. He had to cover it up to not the people out. What about when Moses took the 70 elders of Israel up onto Mount Sinai? Scripture says there that they they saw God and they ate and they drank. What about Isaiah? Isaiah, he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple uh, in in the year King Uzziah died. What about Ezekiel? He had visions of God as he was by the river Kabar. John would say to us, I know. I know you don't have to teach Scripture to me. I know this stuff. But no matter what dreams, visions, revelations, theophanies, Christophanies, and epiphanies people had in times past, compared to the revelation of God that we find in Christ, no one has ever seen God. The Bible, we call it the Word of God but only in a penultimate sense. It is Jesus who is the ultimate and perfect Word of God. What the Bible does infallibly is point to Jesus, point us to Jesus. Jesus Himself said this. He said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39, you guys study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, 40, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What the Bible is to do is not to be an end in itself, but to bring us to Jesus. So let me retell this story, the story of transfiguration. It begins like this, now six days later, remember that? It's important now six days later because what happened six days previously? Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. 
when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 14, and they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, some others say uh, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 15, this one's for us as well. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? 16, Simon answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. 18, you are And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. That's good. So, so good, I'm going to change your name. You shall no longer be called Simon. You shall be Petros. You will be Petra. You shall be called Rock. Yeah, I'm going to call you Rocky. From now on, I'm calling you Rocky. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. A very really good quoted line. It's a well-known phrase, and we are going to come back to that because it's way too good to this by the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. We're going, to, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, I promise. We need to talk about that. We need to get some clarity on that, but mm, not about that right now. We'll come back to that just a little later. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. This is the first time that Jesus has mentioned the church, His church. And then six days later, Jesus takes his church on a field trip up onto a high mountain. And as Jesus prayed, he's transfigured before them. And the law and the prophets arrive, and the law and the prophets arrive to bear their final testimony and say, this is the one that we have been trying to articulate. But we could just never fully get it out. This is the one that will take the the project that we began the project that we could not complete, and He will take it and, and, and make it perfect. The law and the prophets arrived to bear their final testimony to the true Word of God who is Jesus. But the church, we frequently misunderstand this. The church says, oh, we have the law, and we've got the prophets, and Jesus. And we just make the Bible a flat text where we say that every verse of the Bible carries equal authority, where every verse of the Bible will be regarded as having the same capacity for revelation regarding who God is. We'll just treat the Bible as a flat text. We'll have the law and we'll have the prophets and we'll have some Jesus. We'll treat it all more or less the same. And God said, that's a bad idea. You will not. This is my beloved son. Him. Because Jesus is what God has to say. Now, how this plays out in our lives is like this. And you've seen this, okay? The most clever way of all to hide from Jesus is by covering your eyes and your face with an open Bible. Not now, Jesus, I'm reading the Bible. Jesus says, love your enemies. Not now, Jesus, I'm reading the Bible and I'm lingering in the Old Testament. I'm reading about Joshua and I'm reading about David and how they were killing their enemies and I love that part. Yeah, God's justice for all them wicked people. I could use some of that right now. Hold on a second, Jesus. I'm getting to you, but right now I'm reading the Bible. And you can even use the Bible to argue with Jesus, to refute Jesus, and in practice sometimes to trump Jesus. For example, you get a guy like Moses, okay? And Moses says to practice capital punishment by stoning certain kinds of sinners, and you want to endorse capital punishment, so there you go. Or 
Elijah. Elijah calls fire down upon his enemies, and you like the idea of your enemies being burned up. There you go. Or if Elisha calls down a curse on some teenagers who had the gall to make fun of him because he was bald, and you like the idea of bears coming out of the forest and mauling these loud mouth punks, well then, there you go, right? But the problem is you're using the Bible to trump Jesus by saying, the Bible says so. If Moses says that practice capital punishment and Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And if Elijah calls down fire from heaven on his enemies, or Elisha calls down curses and sends bears to attack his enemies, Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But if you kind of like the idea of reciprocal justice or even retributive justice, you can say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And oh, that's my favorite Bible verse. I love it as it applies to others. But Jesus says, Matthew 5, 38, you have heard it said, and you heard it from, the, from like our book. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, and tooth for tooth. 30, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So there's a woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees bring her to Jesus, fling her down in the midst of this crowd, and they say, John chapter 8, verse 4, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Five, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Moses said it, and it's in the Bible, man. What do you say? Notice how the Pharisees have weaponized. According to their own nefarious agenda, we see this happening around us regularly. But the Pharisees are at least correct in that if you want to find a Bible verse to justify your position of violent retribution, you can find those verses. But what did Jesus do? How did He respond when challenged? Rabbi, what do you say? The Bible says stone them and stone them good, stone them fast, save the community. That's what the Bible says. What do you say? Verse 6, Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger, right? We don't know what he wrote, all right? There's tons of speculation and conjecture, but nobody knows. Nobody even knows why he was doing that. But he did not come to write. He is the Word of God. Seven, when, when, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said, let any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. I got a stone right here. Why stoning, by the way? You know, if a community really wants to execute somebody, it's not the most efficient way. There are easier ways to dispatch of a human life than everybody throwing rocks. But stoning does have a certain advantage. Stoning allows everyone in the community to participate. And then each individual to exonerate themselves and say, well, I didn't kill him. I just threw a rock. It wasn't me. So it's communal participation and individual exoneration. That's what you get with a stoning. Jesus says, well, all right. Go ahead. Let the one without sin cast the first stone. 
Like, come on. You go, this is a genius move. Don't you wish you could think of this stuff when you're in a situation like this? Because all of a sudden, they're under this mob mentality. And sociologists know that what we will do in a mob is something that we would never do as an individual. And he breaks the spell. And it creates within these people a moment of self-reflection. Soren Kierkegaard, he said, the crowd is untruth. And Jesus drew them out of the untruth of the crowd and into a moment of honest personal reflection. They had to examine their own life. Am I without sin? No. I am not fit to throw the first stone, which means I'm not fit to throw any stone. Nine, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. They're caught up in that mob mentality. They've all brought their rock. They're there, and they're ready. Got to stone this woman, and they're going to stone this woman with the support of the Bible. And they're ready to act according to the Bible and stone this woman as a mob. But Jesus says, let the one, let the individual without sin throw the first stone. And then they laid down their stones. They departed. And all that's left is the woman and Jesus and a pile of discarded stones. So what did Jesus do now? Does, does Jesus flip over to Leviticus and say, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Does Jesus, as the, the, as the one who is without sin, say, finally, they're all gone. All the sinners are gone. Now I can get to stoning you properly and sinlessly. No, 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 no. It's nothing like that. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Eleven. No one, sir, she said. The verse that we hang so much of our life on, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. Jesus is what God has to say. But wait, there's still more. There's another account. There's another story. Jesus and His disciples, they're on their way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they needed to pass through Samaria. Of course, you probably are aware that at this time, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was fraught with hostility, right? Not unlike the relationship of Israelis and Palestinians today. Jesus and His disciples, they needed lodging for the night. They were dependent upon the hospitality of others, and they request hospitality of a particular Samaritan village, and they are refused. James and John, who Jesus nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, they're incensed by this. They are offended by this, that these, well, let's just say it this way, that these Palestinians had refused hospitality to the Israelis. And they said, hey, Jesus, can we do that thing that's in the Bible? That thing that Elijah did that's in the Bible? It's in the Bible, you know. So it's God's will. That thing where Elijah calls down fire from heaven and burns up the enemy seems like a good time for that right now because look, there's enemies and they're right there. It's a good scripture, Jesus. What a great passage straight from the mouth of God. Jesus, let's do that. We got a chapter. We got a verse for that, Jesus. It's in the Bible. Second Kings chapter 1. Look it up, Jesus. It's right there. It's right there. We could call down fire from heaven and burn them up. Can we do it? Can we please do it? And which they, they mean, can you call down fire from heaven and burn burn them all up could because we love that could we could you be like elijah and do that that story is there you know 
2 Kings chapter 1, the king of Israel wanted to arrest Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite. And he sends an officer and 50 soldiers, and the officer says, O oh, man of God, you are under arrest. And Elijah said, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and burn you and your 50 up. Boom! They're all dead. So the king sends another officer and another 50. Man of God, you are under arrest. Yeah? Well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and burn you and your men, and boom! Direct hit. Burned them up. The king is relentless. He finds a third officer. Poor guy. Gets 50 more soldiers, and he goes, Oh, man of God! Come on, give me a break, man. I'm between a rock and a hard place here. Just cool it with all that fire and stuff. So Elijah finally relents and he goes to the king, but not before 102 men have been burned up. That story, that's the story that James and John and sometimes I love. Because they learned it at Saturday school, Sabbath school, and they liked it. That was a good one. So they said, Jesus, could we do that? It's in the Bible, you know. It must be God's will. If it's in the Bible, can we do that? And Jesus says, what's wrong with you? It's a bad idea. The Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save them. Do you see how we can use the Bible to trump Jesus? But if you have ears to hear, you'll hear God say, stop it. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We're not trying to just be biblical. We're not. Apparently, Graham has decided to be heretical instead. No, we're trying to be Christ-like. We run in earnest pursuit of Jesus. Our nickname is Christian. When it first appeared, it was a mild pejorative, a mini slur, tagged upon some of those earliest followers of Jesus. It means little Jesuses, little Christs. The people said, you guys are so excited. You just want to go around uh, being like Him. You want to be little Jesusites. And they said, I guess we are. I guess you're right. So we're not Bibleites. We're Christians, little Christs. And don't get me wrong, the Bible is critical. The Bible is essential. What about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament is the inspired story. It is the inspired telling of Israel's story of coming to know the living God. But along the way, assumptions are made. And what you have to do is just to stay on the journey long enough until you get to Jesus. That's where it was pointing anyways. The problem with using the term biblical, like biblical principles, like let's govern according to biblical principles, well, you can administrate the institution of slavery according to biblical principles, okay? It is one of the embarrassing things about the, the Bible. The Bible does not ever not uh, present in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. There is not a clear denunciation of slavery, but it seems to accept it as an inevitable institution. But for the Christian, that doesn't matter. Because in the light of Christ, we come to understand that every human being is endowed with the dignity and bears the image of God and, and, and must be treated as we would want ourselves to be treated. We derive that from the light of Christ. It's not about biblical manhood or biblical womanhood. What are these men aspiring to? What is biblical manhood? Is that Moses murdering the Egyptian guard and hiding him under the sand? Is it Elijah with his obvious anger issues? 
No, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, it's Christ that informs what it means to be male and female in this world. It's not biblical manhood or biblical womanhood, but Christ formed manhood and Christ formed womanhood. It's in the light of Christ that we understand what it means to be human, male and female, informed by proximity to and likeness to Christ. So wars of conquest and violent retribution and the institution of slavery, women held as property, can all be biblical. But when we see in the light brighter than the sun shining, the very light of Christ, everything has to be rethought because Jesus is what God has to say. So when you hear someone using Moses and Elijah to trump Jesus, when you hear someone appealing to David and Joshua to argue with Jesus, you know you've heard a bad idea because Jesus is what God has to say. Holy Father, we confess today that we believe that your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the holy, perfect Word of God. That He is the exact representation of your nature and that this is the best news we've ever heard. Lord, save us from the bad idea of using the Bible to trump your Son. Deliver us from the bad habit of rifling through the Bible to find scriptures to argue with something that Jesus said that seems to be, well, just too demanding for us. Father, help us to be the people that confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us to be those that say every knee shall bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. We thank you, God, that everything is redeemed by Christ and being redeemed by Christ. So, Lord, save us from the bad ideas and save us from the bad idea of using the Bible against Jesus. Help us to rejoice in the glorious truth that Jesus is what you have to say. And that's what we believe. Amen.